Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 32. But in order to get into Psalm 32, we're going to have to do a little bit of word definition first. And we're also going to look at some of the background that is probably the inspiration for the things that David has written in this psalm. It's not a particularly long psalm. It's only 12 verses. But it starts right out with a very theological statement. And that theological statement starts with the word blessed. Now, our English word blessed covers a whole variety of Hebrew and Greek concepts. For instance, when we were talking in Matthew about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses the word blessed a lot. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And when we covered that, I talked about the fact that the Greek word makarios, makarioi, the adjective form of it, even though it is sometimes rendered as happy, I tried to steer us away from the concept of happy as being the definition of blessed, because happiness is often circumstantial. You're happy when good things are happening. You're sad when bad things are happening. And that's not really what Jesus was getting at, even if you look at the words that have that hap portion of the word, like happenstance. If things happen completely out of order, they're haphazard. Happiness is based on the things that are happening to you. And so I defined blessed back then as spiritually prosperous or getting some kind of benefit from God. But here in the Hebrew language, the word is esher, and if you look at any Hebrew dictionary and you look up the meaning of esher, the first definition they will give you for it is happy. And so yet again, I want to say, if you're thinking of happiness in terms of you are reacting to the circumstances around you, and your circumstances are favorable, and therefore you feel happy, that's not what David's getting at, the same way it's not what Jesus was getting at. Instead, I would like you to think of blessed within the context of being looked upon, acted upon by God in a favorable way so that your recognition of your circumstances at that point, your recognition of where your contentment and happiness is coming from is that you understand that it is God who is producing, creating the circumstances that are bringing about that feeling of contentment in what's happening in your life. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Because David starts out by saying, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. And we, 
as 21st century Christians, we'd all agree with that. Mm -hmm. We'd say, yes, how truly spiritually prosperous is the man whose transgression is being forgiven. Now, this particular psalm, you will notice the introduction to it, says that it is of David and it is a masculine. In your liner notes of the NASB, you'll see a couple of different possibilities for what the masculine means. They'll say that it means contemplative or that it is didactic. It's meant for teaching. It's meant to be skillful. In other words, this is David not creating a song and not creating something for people to repeat in the temple or as they're going up to Jerusalem. Rather, he wants them to learn this because of the importance and the necessity of the theological concepts that lay at the heart of this. And several times in this very short psalm, David is going to use the word Selah. Think about that. Stop and consider this. Because David is really driving this theological point. That if God does not impute your sin to you, then you are truly, genuinely blessed from God. Because you deserve to have your sins counted against you. After all, you're the one who did the sinning. And so God, being righteous and holy, should by all rights judge you for your sinfulness. The only way that God will not judge you for your sinfulness is to not impute your sin to you. If he simply does not ascribe your sin to you, then you are truly blessed. Now, David's going to use that word impute. We talk about imputation Every so often here at GCA, there are three great imputations in the Bible. Do you remember what they are? This is standard, basic, ground-level theological stuff. You need to know the three great imputations of the Bible. The first imputation in the Bible is that Adam's sin was imputed to all mankind. And even Paul talks about that, that even though we did not sin in the same similitude as Adam, nevertheless, he says, everybody is sinful since Adam, proven by the fact that everybody has died since Adam. For sin comes death. If you weren't sinful, you would not die. Everybody dies. Hence, everybody's sinful. Now, some people don't like that. There have been theologies through the years that have argued against that notion that we all have Adam's sinfulness, not just his sin, but his sinfulness imputed to us. And so there are theologies that have said, no, we each individually are born sort of spiritually neutral, and then it's up to us to maintain our righteousness or our sinfulness. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible is very plain that Adam's sin, Adam's fall, he is our federal head, and therefore all mankind is imputed with Adam's sinfulness. Whether you think it's fair or not, it's still the reality. And you're still going to be judged for your sinfulness, even though you didn't get a choice in the matter. The second great imputation in the Bible is that 
the sins of all God's people, the sins of all the people that God is saving, the sins of all the people who God gives to Christ, those people have their sinfulness imputed to Christ. Christ then takes it to the cross. He pays the sin penalty, the sin debt for us. And therefore, that price has been paid on our behalf so we don't have to pay that sin debt because Jesus, as our substitute, has paid that sin debt. That's the second imputation. The third great imputation in the Bible is Christ's righteousness is then imputed to our account. And it's been that way really ever since Abraham is the first place in the Bible where we see that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. It was imputed to him as righteousness. So it wasn't personal righteousness that Abraham established on his own. Rather, it was a foreign righteousness that was then ascribed to Abraham. It was put into his account. And so that is the great theological overview of the Bible. All men are sinners and sinful. Those who God is saving, their sin is placed on Christ. He is their substitute, died and paid their sin penalty, redeeming them from the curse of the law. And then rather than just leaving us in that state of spiritual neutrality and knowing that we need a righteousness that is on par with God's righteousness to live in God's presence, God imputes to us the righteousness that Christ himself attained. And that's pretty much the whole of redemptive history right there. Part of that development, that understanding of that theology comes right here where David says in verse 2, how blessed is the man to whom Yahweh does not impute iniquity. David, you will notice, does not start by arguing whether or not men are sinful. That's a given. He starts with, there's a cure for your sinfulness. And that cure for your sinfulness is that God does not impute your iniquity to you. So the first two verses of this psalm, how blessed, how spiritually prosperous is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. That concept of covering goes all the way back to the Ark of the Covenant. The lid on the Ark of the Covenant was called the capareth. It's a word that means the covering. But it's also a word that goes all the way back to Noah's Ark. When he covered it with pitch, it's that same kind of word that means it was covered with a covering. David picks that up and says, God does the same thing with our sinfulness. He covers it. Yes? Did you say that would go all the way back to Adam and Eve? Well, yeah, the first sacrifice and the first animal, yeah. As soon as there was a sinner, there was God making a covering for them. So, yeah. So then the transgression of that man is forgiven how is it forgiven? That sin is covered. And then how spiritually prosperous is the man to whom Yahweh does not impute his own iniquity. The iniquity that man deserves is then not accredited to that man's account. 
and how spiritually prosperous is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit, no lying, no willingness to cover up and hide, which David's going to talk about in a moment, that he was one time silent. He was one time trying to hide his sinfulness. He was one time trying to avoid God's wrath for his sinfulness. And he's going to talk about his reaction to that in a moment. But an honest person, an honest man, a man who is not deceitful, is a man who can admit that he's sinful and that he has, in fact, trespassed against God over and over again. And so the spiritually prosperous man is the man who is willing to admit that he is a sinner, that he has sinned against a righteous, holy God, and then blessing upon blessing, God doesn't ascribe to that person the iniquity that rightfully is theirs because he has covered that sin and he has forgiven that sin. And we see the fulfillment of all that prophetic talk from David in the fact that Jesus did come to the planet that he did die on Passover, that he was the sacrificial lamb, that he did die for the sins of all his people, not just the Jews, but people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. He died for the sins of the world. So what a great theological statement in the first two verses here. How did David learn this? I mean, it's an exceptionally grand theological concept for David to go launching in with, but how did he learn it? Well, he learned it first person. He learned it experientially. Keep your finger there in Psalm 32 or a bookmark and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Several times over the course of reading these psalms, we have made mention of the fact that David sinned greatly against God when he took Bathsheba impregnated her and then had her husband killed. Well, this is Nathan the prophet rebuking David for what he has actually done. Chapter 12, starting at verse 1, says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and he said, There were two men in one city. The one was rich and the other was poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and he nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Verse 5, then David's anger burned greatly against him. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely this man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold. Because he did this thing and he had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. And it is I who have delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. 
I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. By the way, do you think David knew what he had done prior to this moment? Sure he did, but he had been suppressing it. He had been keeping it secret. He didn't admit it. He's going to talk about that in a moment in the psalm. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord Yahweh also has taken away your sin and you shall not die. Hmm. This is the moment when David realizes, blessed is the man whose sins are covered, mm -hmm. to whom God does not impute sin. David was guilty as he could be. Yep. And God did... Pardon me? The penalty was death. And the penalty was death. Yes. Absolutely. Not only for killing a man, but for committing adultery. The penalty was absolutely death. And yet God said that he was going to take away his sin and not kill him. Okay, so why did God do that? What is the motivation for God doing that? The only answer is because he wanted to. Because David was his. Because he had an everlasting, unconditional covenant with David. And how did David get that covenant? God made it. God decided it. God chose it. God was merciful to him. God was gracious to him. Now, did David's sin also have a price attached to it? Well, yes, that's the very next verse. Verse 14 says, however, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So the child died soon as he was born. And yet David himself had his life spared. So what we see here, though it's not spelled out for us theologically, what we see it is experientially, and this is how David learned these things, is that God forgave him simply because God was gracious to him. God forgave him because God wanted to forgive him. But God also exacted a price from him for the sin. I find that fascinating. Because the same sovereign God who can hold anybody guilty for their trespasses against him is the exact same God who chose not to judge David. It's the exact same God who can choose not to judge all those who are in Christ. 
And yet, if we do sin, if we do stray off the path, if we do trespass whom the Lord loves, he'll chasten. And sometimes he'll chasten us badly, which is why the writer of Hebrews said, we all had fathers who chastened us for their own pleasure, and that kind of chastening was never fun, but it yielded the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And so the whole of biblical theology is that through the imputations, God is able to take the sin that is yours, impute it to Christ, use Christ to cover your sin, you in particular because God chose you because he wanted to, and therefore he doesn't impute your sin to you. However, he will still correct you. He will still guide you. He'll still lead you on a proper path. And that correction is not going to be fun oftentimes. But in the end, because you don't have any personal righteousness of your own, he will impute the righteousness that Christ alone could achieve to your account. God is very big into imputation. And he proved it to David when Nathan said to him, the Lord has taken away your sin, you shall not die. And then said, but because of this deed, you've given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The enemies of the Lord are going to mock now because you, the righteous king, the one who's supposed to be living by my law and teaching others to live by my law, you have very flagrantly sinned against me, very openly, very publicly. Therefore, I am going to extract a price from you. And then Nathan went to his house. So back to the psalm. David knows, the point of reading that is, David knows experientially what he's talking about here. That he is indeed the blessed man. He is the blessed man because... He's got that transgression. He's very aware of that transgression. It's before his eyes all the time. And God did not impute it to him, but rather forgave him and covered him. And I, for one, am very glad that's the kind of God we worship. Amen. I'm happy to say, yeah, that's my God. Because that is the God who first loved us. And his demonstration of love for us is that he sent Christ to die for us so that we would not have to pay for our own sins. That soteriology goes all the way back to David here. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no lie, no deceit, no cover-up. Now David is going to say that he was once a deceitful man. He did try to cover up his sin, obviously. That's why he had Uriah the Hittite killed the way he did. It's like, well, if I put him on the front lines, there's probably a good likelihood he'll die. But it's not my fault. The general put him up there. Even though I wrote to the general and said, put him on the front line. He's constantly trying to cover up his sin. Here's his reaction, verse 3. When I kept my silence about my sin... My body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, God, was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as the fever heat of summer. Selah, think about that. So, okay, let's think about that. 
when you sin against the only righteous holy God, you know it, and more importantly, he knows it. And if he loves you and is going to correct you and drive you back to himself, his hand is indeed going to be heavy on you. It's going to play with your mind. It's going to play with your emotions. And you're going to find yourself doing things like being a little hesitant to be found among the people of God. It's a little tough to like come to church and sing praises to God when you're trying to hide from God. And so David says that the hand of God was heavy on him while he was denying his own sinfulness, while he was covering up his own transgressions, and yet his inner man wouldn't let it go. He never reached the point where he was just comfortable with his sin, with his deceitfulness, with his lying. And he credits God with that, that God's hand was heavy on him, and that's the reason that his inward man was groaning over what he had done. He was feeling the guilt. He was feeling the weight of his own actions, and it was affecting him physically. He said, my body wasted away through my groanings all day long. Day and night, God's hand was heavy on David, and so his zest for life, his happiness in life, faded away. Because, yes, when you're carrying that kind of guilt around, it's really impossible to be socially capable without being a tremendously large liar. So, blessed is the man in whom there is no deceit, but when I was deceitful, I kept silent about my sin. And then... I suffered the consequences of it. My body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, the hand of God was heavy on me. And as a consequence, my zest for life, my vitality was drained away. And he compares that to the fever heat of the summer and then gives you the warning. Think about that. Mm-hmm. Tom, if you would, look up First John, first chapter. So First John 1. And you're going to read verses 9 and 10. Because David reaches the point where he realizes that he's far better off going to God and admitting his sinfulness to God because that is the only solution to his sinfulness. How frequently have you heard me say the cure for you can't be you? And so when you're aware of your sinfulness, when you're aware that you have trespassed against God, the best thing you can do is go to God and admit it. My kids, when they were young, I taught them that if we were ever at odds with each other, anybody who's listened to me for any length of time already knows this story and can probably recite it verbatim, but I'm going to tell it again anyway. I taught my kids... When there's a difference between us, don't run away from me. Press close to me. Because if you run from me, I'm going to catch you. And then it's going to get worse for you. Because this old man doesn't like chasing kids. But the best thing you can do is come cling to my leg and look up at me with, with the widest eyes you can possibly look up at me. Hug my leg and say, I'm sorry, Daddy, I love you. Well, David's saying the same thing here. 
I realize I need to go to God because he's the only solution. He's my only cure. And I acknowledge my sin to you. And I acknowledged my iniquity, and I did not hide it. Instead, I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, to Yahweh. And then David says, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Think about that. So again, he wants you to contemplate this. Think about it. Be instructed by this. That the only way to deal with your sinfulness is to go to God and admit your sinfulness because he is a loving and a gracious and a forgiving God. And that's the only place where you're going to get a clear conscience. That's the only way that you're going to know that restitution has been made between you and the one whom you have offended. 1 John 1 9 and 10, Tom is going to read it. John picks up that same theology and transports it into the New Testament. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we say we don't have sin, which sadly some people think, if you say you have no sin, then you make God a liar because it's God and his word that says everybody is sinful ever since Adam. But if we confess our sin to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. That's the same thing David said. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you did forgive the guilt of my sin. So even though God extracted a price from David, the fact that David did not die, the fact that he was not taken off the throne, the fact that he was not stoned to death, the fact that Nathan the prophet was able to say to him, God has forgiven your sin. That is how David knows that a blessed man is a man to whom God does not impute sin. Verse 6. Therefore, Knowing all this, everything we've talked about so far, knowing all that, therefore let everyone who is godly pray to thee in the time when you may be found. In other words, God who is eternal, God who is everywhere all at once, God who has revealed himself to mankind, David says you have an obligation now to go to him all the time, to pray to him all the time, to confess to him all the time, because he can be found right now. There is a time coming when God is going to judge people for their sin, judge them eternally, and then it's too late. There's no more finding God. There's no more praying to God. There's no more asking for forgiveness. So right now, while that forgiveness exists, Right now, while there is potential for God to forgive you, run to him, go to him, confess your sin to him, pray to him, 
And everybody who has a God consciousness, which is what that godly phrase means, let everyone who is godly, let everyone who acknowledges Yahweh, everybody who has the conscience of their own sin and the righteous holy God, all those people pray to God right now and keep doing it and pray to him all the time because right now he can be found. The consequence is, that even in the flood of great waters, those great waters are not going to overwhelm that person who trusts in God. Why are we still standing? Because there are great floods out there. There are so many troubles in life. There are so many trials in life. There are so many difficulties in this world. And we're still standing. And then to add to all the strife and difficulties of this life, a man's life is short and full of trouble. On top of that, we're sinners. On top of that, we've sinned against a righteous, holy, eternal God. Therefore, we deserve eternal punishment. And yet, despite the troubles of this life and despite our own troubles, we are not going to be overwhelmed and we're not going to be washed away because our trust is in God and we go to God, we pray to God, we confess to God, and we admit to God that we have sinned against him. And that is an ongoing thing. It's not something that we say, I confess here and I'm done confessing. It is a constant recognition of our constant failure before him. And now, while he's here, while he can be found, while grace exists, we run to him over and over again. We press close. We grab a hold of his leg and look up at him and say, Father, forgive me. You, verse 7, you are my hiding place. Where are you going to hide from your sin? If you know your sin, if you know your depravity, if you know how many ways and how many times you have transgressed against God, where are you going to hide? David tried to suppress his sin. He tried to hide his sin. He tried to make it so that nobody would know until the prophet of God called him out for it. And it killed him. It ate him up inwardly. What are you going to do with that weight? What are you going to do with that sin? There's only one place you can go and find comfort. There's only one place you can go and hide from the judgment that is rightly yours, and that is to run to God. He is the hiding place from all the troubles of this life and from the trouble of your own sinful depravity. Is it just me, or is there anybody else in this room who's just dead sick of their own inability to be good? I mean, we're just constantly sinful. God is our hiding place. Thou art my hiding place, and you do preserve me from trouble, and you do surround me with songs of deliverance. So not only does God pay the price for your sin, not only does God not impute your sin to you, but he also allows you to sing songs of deliverance because you are among the people that he has delivered from this world, from your sinfulness, from your own depravity. He is your deliverance. Therefore, once again, David says, I'll sing to him. I'll praise him. I will glorify him. I will bless his name because he's the only place where I can hide. He is the 
preservation for me, and he is my deliverance. And then again, think about that. David wants you to really consider this. Verse 8. This is now God speaking. This is David speaking first person for God. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. And I will counsel you with my eye upon you. That's the way a good parent works. Not only teach the child, but then protect the child. Be there. You, you have a little one in your house learning to walk. You don't just say, okay, walk, and then walk away from him. You get down on the ground with him, and you put your hands out, and you say, come on, walk to me. Come on, walk here. Because you not only teach them, you not only instruct them, but then you care for them. You watch over them. Here is God saying that he is going to instruct us. He's going to teach us in the way that we should go. Rather than our sinful proclivities, rather than the debauched way of life that we fall into so very naturally, rather than the fleshly way of life, he's going to teach us the better way of life. He teaches us through his word. He is taught us by the law. He teaches us through his covenants. He teaches us by his son coming, who was the ultimate teacher, and then left us his apostles to teach us everything that Christ taught them. Christianity is about God teaching us the way that we ought to be, the way that we ought to walk, the way that we should go. And he not only counsels us, he not only instructs us, but then he watches over us. He keeps his eye on us. And then adds, because he knows what we're like. He knows we're just dust. He knows that we're mule-headed. And so the next line is, and don't be like a horse or a mule. <laughs> don't be as a horse or as a mule. In what way? Because they have no understanding. And then he says, yes, they'll do what you want them to do. Because you put a bridle and a bit and a saddle on them. And then you get them to do what you want them to do. And God is comparing that to his relationship with people and saying, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking to just put a bit in your mouth and make you perform the way I want you to perform. Instead, I want you to have understanding. Understand that I love you. Understand that my instruction comes, comes from a place that is to my greatest glory and to your greatest good. Understand that I am taking you into the eternity that I have prepared for you since before the foundation of the world. Therefore, your reaction to me and your behavior before me should come out of love and appreciation for who I am and what I have done for you, how I have covered your sin, how I have not imputed it to you, how I am your hiding place and your deliverance. So don't be like a brute beast and just do what you're supposed to do because I make you do it. Instead, have comprehension, wisdom, understanding, and know why you should act like this. Do not be like a horse or as a mule who have no understanding, whose trappings include a bit and a bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. Which is true. Wild beasts out in the field, you walk toward them, they run away. But the reason that we can control 
wants wild horses is because we break them, we put a bit in their mouth, we stick a saddle on them, and then we can ride them. But it's not what they wanted to do. They didn't show up and knock on the door one day and say, hi, want to ride? Instead, we have made them succumb to our will by forcing them. And God is comparing that and saying, that's not what I'm doing. That's not what I want from you. Do not be like the horse or the mule who have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. It's God's way of saying, I'm protecting you. I'm taking care of you. When God teaches you what righteousness looks like, when God teaches you the proper behavior before him, a holy judge, he's doing that for your good because he knows both the short and long-term sorrows of the people who are wicked who he's going to hold accountable. And outer darkness doesn't sound like fun. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in Yahweh, loving kindness shall surround him. So if you are surrounded by loving kindness, if the motivation for God not holding your sin against you, God not imputing your sin to you, if that is the result of his loving kindness, then even those times when he is correcting you, even those times when life is going tough, even those times when his hand is heavy against you, those times are still coming through his loving kindness because he is breaking you of your rebellion. He's teaching you how to walk out your life so that the end result is that you end up in his everlasting glory, which is all joy and happiness. Happiness. I got back to that word, didn't I? Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but by contrast, he who trusts the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. So, now that we know all of that, now that we know all the theology that David has placed in front of us, he can conclude by saying, be glad in the Lord. So, if in fact blessed, if in fact Esher, means happiness, means contentment in life in recognition of what God has done for you, well, then it is appropriate to say, so then be glad. Recognize that your life is in his hands and he is inspired to protect you and love you and get you all the way home because of his grace and loving kindness toward you. Therefore, regardless of what happens in this life, you can still approach it with a level of gladness and joy in the Lord, regardless of the circumstances of this life. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. I guess it's worth asking the question, so how did you become the righteous ones. Because God picked you, God decided, God chose, God taught you, God instructed you in the way you should go, therefore you're called the saints of God, therefore you're called the godly ones, therefore you're called 
the righteous people, the ones whom God has imputed righteousness. He didn't impute your sins to you. He imputes your sins to Christ. He imputes righteousness, eternal righteousness to you. Well, that's every reason I can think of to be glad and rejoice. It's, it's good instruction. If you understand anything David said in the first 10 verses, it's inevitable that you're going to reach the point of, you know what? I'm pretty happy about that. I'm pretty glad I'm willing to rejoice. And how are you going to rejoice? What is that rejoicing going to look like? And shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. How'd you become upright in heart? God taught you. God instructed you. God chose you. He did all that for you out of his loving kindness. Therefore, since you are counted among the righteous, since you are counted among the upright in heart, shout for joy. Now, that's not something that we, if you'll pardon the phrase, white people do very frequently. <laughs> it's why we get the nickname, the frozen chosen. But you know, it would be completely appropriate every once in a while to make a joyful noise to the Lord, to sing praises to God. And it's certainly not beyond me to shout to God every once in a while because I'm that blessed and that happy about it. Got it? He is good. He is good. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God. <laughs>